Father, I just pray that you would please come fill us with your spirit. Help us to understand your word. Uh, let us continue to make, uh, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in our heart as you command us. Um, Lord, we're here for you, and there's nothing that we can bring you, Lord, except our nothingness, our emptiness. And we ask that you would be exalted in meeting us again, in filling us again, in pouring out your forgiveness, your love, your, love, your kindness, uh, your mercy again, Lord. Because we're needy people, and we say that unashamedly, knowing that you have no end to your mercies. They're new every morning. And we stand in awe of that this morning. We, we sing to you because of it. Um, but just have your way today, Lord. I pray that you would help us to be clay today that is moldable and shapeable <clears throat> on your potter's wheel. And that you would, you would mold us, that you would shape us, that you'd form us into whatever you desire for your honor and for your glory, individually and as a whole. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. You guys can have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I've got like 25 points today in my sermon, so I'm going ju- yeah, to... Somebody say amen. Well... Get comfy. Um, no, I'm, I won't be able to get to all of them, but I, I'm just going to jump right in and read here. Um, we are transitioning into the second half of this book, and I'll, I'll talk more about that, where Paul is going to now begin to give some very practical commands. And I pray that we would have hearts to receive this this morning. But Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to read verses one, or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray one more time. God, thanks for today. Thanks for your word. Pray you'd give me words to speak in the moment that I need it. Pray you would give us eyes and ears to hear you, to see what you're doing, what you're calling us to. Help us to see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so try to frame this a little bit this morning. There's a a lot in here. Um, And to give an illustration that might help is recently uh, I tried to make some protein cookies. Tried to bake them myself. I already hear some chuckles because when it comes to the kitchen, it's not my my forte necessarily. I'm a beast on the grill though. I want you to know that. I can smoke smoke meat and I can make some burgers. But... uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I turned 40 this past year, and so 
Uh, I, I'm just, my body is slowing down. I get tired quickly, so I'm trying to like optimize all of my life, and so I'm just like, carbs are bad, man. Carbs are the devil, I'm telling you. And so I've just been trying to eat protein. Anyway, so I, but I came across this recipe for protein cookies, and I thought, you know, if I can have my protein and have it in a cookie, best of both worlds, amen, right? So, so I, I, you know, I started off following the recipe, but we didn't quite have all the ingredients, and I thought, well, you know, I'll just add a little of this, and maybe we don't have this, and so, but maybe this will work instead. And so I, I made, made my own protein cookies, and I've got a picture of them here for you. You know, now, they resemble a certain type of emoji, was the initial, was the, was the initial, uh, was the initial takeaway. Um, and I was the only one in my family that ate any, I believe. I think everyone else was scared, but uh, that was all right. I, as you can see, I didn't die, so that's the good, that's the, that's the good news, I guess. Um, but but here, here's the deal, and here's the reason I, I tell you this, this kind of silly uh, experience that I had, is that um, when it comes to maturity in our lives, both individually and as a church, okay, to maturity, a lot of times I think that our maturity kind of ends up like these cookies, okay? Um, they don't look all that appetizing, and you're not really sure if you want to taste them or not. A lot of people are like that. A lot of churches can be like that. But here's the deal. The reason our maturity ends up that way is because we don't follow the recipe. We don't follow the recipe. And what I want to propose is that, again, there, there's a ton in these 16 verses that we read. But just, again, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're, there's so much in Ephesians, we're just kind of skimming the surface as we go through this a half chapter at a time. But I believe that in the first 16 verses, verses of Ephesians chapter 4, what you have is a recipe for maturity, a recipe for maturity, is that it is the will of God that his people individually and corporately as a church be mature. Guys, and I want you to hear this, it, it might sound simple, but he wants us to be mature. It is not God's will for us to live in perpetual adolescence in regards to our spiritual walk with him. He wants us to be mature. Now, in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, it's primarily been focused on what God has done. It has been gospel. It has been things that are true, that Jesus has accomplished. That's what we've been looking at over and over and over again for the, for the first three chapters of this book. But here at the beginning of chapter 4, he transitions from primarily talking about what is true to what we must do. From what is true to what we must do. And this is just, as in passing here, this is always how Christian obedience works. We start with what is true. We start with the gospel. We start with what Jesus has accomplished for us. And then in light of that, we go out and we live. Okay? Um, and so in the first three chapters, I mean, we've talked a lot about what Christ has done uh, to accomplish unity for us. We've talked about how he's made us bride, body, family, etc. Um, but celebrating the positional unity that Christ has provided without pursuing the practical unity that Christ commands is to treat the grace of God with disdain and to treat it in vain. I want to say that again. I want you to hear this. To celebrate the positional unity that Christ has provided without pursuing the practical unity that Christ has commanded, is to treat the grace of God in vain. And what I mean by that is this, is there's a sense in which absolutely, 100%, because of what Jesus has done, every single one of us in this room this morning that knows him as our Lord and Savior, we are one in Christ. But then this is the way the Bible talks. That is absolutely true, but then the Bible says, now go act like it. Go do it. Yes, start with that truth. Start with what is true, but this is what you must do. Christ has accomplished his work. 
And now he calls us to live in light of that work. And as we're going to see this morning, it takes intentionality, it takes effort, it will not just happen magically. There are certain things that we need to commit our lives to as his people to bring him the honor and glory that he deserves in pursuing this practical unity as he has commanded it. So, recipe for maturity, okay, and I'm going to kind of just continue to tease out that analogy and use that language, but I want to point out four ingredients, okay, four ingredients in this recipe for maturity that I see in this text and we're gonna, and we got to kind of mix them all together in order for us to be mature, both individually and as a church. And again, I, I keep saying that because Paul, he comes in and out of that. And many times, we, we so read everything in the Bible through our individualistic American Western mind. And it's not wrong, like, like we are individuals and you have to trust Jesus for yourself, Okay. Um, in, order to, in order to be saved. But much of the way Paul talks, especially in the book of Ephesians and much of the New Testament, it's framed in terms of the corporate. It's framed in terms of the whole, of the body, the church. And we tend not to think that way. But here are the four ingredients. Here are the four ingredients, okay? There are some personal attitudes, there are some doctrinal truths, spiritual gifts, and then one very simple action, Okay? And I'm just going to walk through and show these to you, and then I'm going to come back and just give a, a couple of practical um, implications and applications. But personal attitudes, doctrinal truths, spiritual gifts, and one very simple action. Okay? So first of all, starting in verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now I think what he's talking about here. Um, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of of which we've been called. What is this calling? It's all that he's talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And if I had to sum that up, is that our lives are to be for the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. You saw this repeated over and over and over again. To the praise of his glory in chapters 1 through 3. In view of this high calling that God has called us through our little, tiny, broken, sinful lives to make much of him and that he's willing to do that by the power of his spirit is a very high calling. And Paul's saying we must live in light of that. And here's the first thing that he says should mark us as his people living in light of this high calling that Christ has provided. You ready? Humility. Humility. This is, throughout church history, commentators have always said this is the chief of the virtues. This is the chief of the virtues. Humility. It is not thinking less of self, but it is thinking of self less, as C.S. Lewis said. Humble people, uh, we all like to be around them because they're not about themselves. And this humility can only be provided, I believe, through being preoccupied with Christ's humility There's no humility like Christ's humility and the humility that he showed. In Philippians chapter 2, you know, Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of like mind, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. That's what humility is, considering others as more important than yourself. And this is the first of the personal attitudes that Paul was going to give here. Again, there's several lists here in this chapter. Humility. Secondly, gentleness. Other places it's translated meekness. It is the idea of, of power that is under control. It's the idea of when a, when a dad wrestles with, with their little kids. You know, you could... You could really take it to him if you want to, but you, like, you're, you're gentle. You have, to be, you're, you have power, but you have to be under control. That we're gentle, that we're meek. Patience. Patience, oh, a favorite for all of us, right? We all love patience. How long, d- 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 let me ask you this, does it take a lot or does it take a little to frustrate you? Does it take a lot or does it take a little? <laughs> it depends, amen. But we should be long-suffering, patient. And then next, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with. 
patient, bearing with this, 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 you know, it carries with it the idea, like Paul's telling us up front, this won't be easy. It's going to take effort. And man, how quick we can be to not put in the effort to pursue the practical unity in light of the positional unity that Christ has provided. Some of us don't like conflict. We don't like hard conversations. And we don't like certain people that just aren't like us or that rub us the wrong way. And we're not very willing always to bear with one another in love. All these personal attitudes. Also, here's another attitude. Verse 3, that we should be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. It's not just going to happen. When, some, when a conflict comes up, when a conflict rises, we should be quick to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Um, several commentaries that I read this past week, speaking of this word eager, it, it, I mean, we, we're kind of catching it here in the English, but uh, the way it's framed in the original sentence structure in the Greek, it, it's, this is super emphasized. If Paul were here preaching it, he would, he would do something like this. He would say, we must be eager! Maybe. He'd pound the pulpit, maybe not. But, but like he, he's overly emphasizing this. We must make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. These are personal attitudes that are part of the recipe for maturity. If we're not intentional about pursuing these things, our maturity is not going to happen. It's not going to be evidenced. And we're going to sit in perpetual immaturity. Okay, going on here, the second ingredient, though, is also some doctrinal truths. Doctrinal truths. So right out of that, then, he goes into seven things here in verses four, four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The body, the spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, and God. And again, the emphasis here being on one. And I'm going to come back and talk more about this and the importance of doctrinal clarity uh, and the role that it plays in us having unity. Uh, but guys, these, these personal attitudes and these, and these doctrinal truths, again, you think about a recipe and different ingredients, um, you've you, you got to put these things together. You've got to mix them together. Um, too many times we will, sometimes maybe we are willing to pursue humility and gentleness and patience and, and be accepting of people, yet at the same time we're not willing to hold to any doctrinal standards. That's not, that's not what the Bible calls us to. Um, and as we're going to see, it's, it's truth and grace, truth and, and love. But he's got those seven things here. And again, I'm going to come back and talk more about these. But third, not just personal attitudes and doctrinal truths, but also spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. So, starting in verse 7, and then down through 11, let me just read this and, and explain it a little bit as we go. But he says, but grace was given to each one of us. That's important. It's grace. These gifts he's going to describe, they are a grace. They are a gift. You did not earn them. They're part of your salvation. According to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And Paul's quoting here from the Old Testament. And then he unpacks that verse a little bit in 9 and 10. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Here, here's very quickly what Paul is, is, is saying here. Here's the image. Is that Christ was in heaven, he came down to the earth all the way, all the way to the grave, to the tomb, and then he rose again. And it is a picture of a victorious, conquering king or leader, hero, that goes in, plunders the enemy, and then has a bunch of spoils and gives those spoils to his people. That's what he's saying when he talks about the measure of Christ's gift and that when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That Jesus Christ came. It's a very beautiful gospel picture. 
And he came and he plundered the enemy and he freed us from him who has the power of death, Hebrews says, that is the devil, and delivered those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their, all their lives, Hebrews 2.14. And now he ascended on high and as he ascended on high, he gives away the spoils of his victory to his people. What are those spoils? They are these gifts. And there's, there's more gifts, <coughs> excuse me, Listed at different places in the New Testament. Um, as you study spiritual gifts in the New Testament, you're going to go to one of four places. You're going to go to Romans chapter 12, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, here in Ephesians chapter 4, and then also in 1 Peter chapter 4, he mentions them just briefly. But the gifts that he talks about here, and again, I'm just giving a flyover of some of these things, but here's what they are. This is called the fivefold minister gifts the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Um, these, these gifts that are listed here in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm big on these gifts, okay? I'm, I'm big on these gifts. Um, if you ever take our E2 course, one of the things that we'll spend a couple sessions talking about are these, are these gifts, uh, the APEST gifts. That's a little acronym, Apostle, Prophet, Evangelist, Shepherd, Teacher. Um, I believe, and let me just point out why briefly, is I believe that each and every single person in this room that knows Jesus Christ as your Savior has been given one of these gifts, okay? Now, let me, let me clarify some things very quickly because they need to be clarified. One is, in, especially in regards to the gift of apostle and the gift of prophet, is that we believe that that gift still exists, but we do not believe that that office still exists. And this is very important because there's a lot of false teachers today who claim apostolic authority in the sense of the things that they say or the things that they speak or the things that they might quote-unquote prophesy are somehow on par with Scripture or are somehow inspired. And I want to tell you something, that's absolutely false every single time. Whenever you hear somebody say that, I want you to know that you just need to run. They're a false teacher, and they're undermining the authority of the Word of God. But we do believe not in the office of apostle or the office of prophet, but in the gift of those things. So here's what I mean, is that apostle, it literally just means sent one, or one who is sent. When the Bible was being translated throughout church history, when it was translated into Latin, the Latin word is missio, for apostle, okay? The Latin word is missio, and the reason that's important is that's just where we get the word missionary, and that's what we believe about the apostles. The apostles like the missionary. The apostle is the one that wants to drive the church forward in mission, wants to plant churches. If you study the lives of the apostles in the New Testament, like Paul and Peter, that's what they did in the book of Acts. Yes, they evangelized, but they planted churches. They established churches. That is what, that is what the apostle does, and we believe that there are still people with that missionary-type gift that want to plant churches and drive the mission forward into places uh, where, the, where the church is not fully established. In the same way with the prophet, in the Old Testament there was the office of prophet, the office of prophet. And when they spoke, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, many of the minor prophets, Micah, uh, Amos, when they spoke, it was the word of God. That does not exist anymore. Okay? The canon of Scripture of Revelation is closed. Genesis, Revelation, it is sufficient, it is inspired, it is absolutely enough. But we do believe in, in, type of, uh, in a type of prophetic gifting that is still given to the church to it, the, what the prophet's going to primarily do is constantly call the church back to repentance and back to right relationship with God. Okay? And, when the, and the prophet, when he speaks, they, they speak the truth of the Word of God, but they speak it with like an urgency. Um, and they're constantly calling the church to repent and to be right with God vertically, to have that, that vertical relationship uh, intact, okay? Then you have the evangelist, okay? Uh, um, again, culture plays such a, way, uh, such a role in shaping the way we interpret things, and it's important that we get our definitions from the Bible. But most of us, when we think of the evangelist, we probably think of Billy Graham, or somebody doing some sort of a stadium crusade. I'm not in any way going to say that that's not evangelism, but the idea of the evangelist, the, the evangelist is kind of like the recruiter to the family. And they're constantly going out and they're wanting to reach people and to, to, to bring them in and to unite them. And so where the apostle wants to drive the mission forward, take the church out and plant new churches, the prophet is calling people to go vertically with God. The evangelist wants to go out and find those individual lost sheep and bring them, and bring them into the fold. Okay? And then finally you have the shepherds and the teachers. Um, many times this is translated pastor, but um, shepherd is the literal translation here. And it's just the idea of the shepherd wants to care for people. He wants to make sure everybody's okay. 
He wants to make sure everybody's all right, and the teacher wants to just establish truth, where the prophet is all about speaking the truth of the Word of God that is most relevant right now for this moment and what the church most needs to hear in this moment. The teacher is about establishing foundations of truth, of doctrinal truth. doesn't matter what the truth is. They just want to teach all truth and build foundations in people's lives. Does that make sense? You with me? I know that was a lot of information there, um, but... Again, just showing you the ingredients that I think Paul wants us to hold together here is you've got these personal attitudes, okay, uh, in verses 2 and 3, and then you've got this list of doctrinal truths, and then this list of spiritual gifts, okay, this is, this is part of it. And then finally, the last ingredient is this one simple command, one simple command, okay, and that is found in verse 15, okay. Um, verse 15 he says this, rather speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. This is the one command that whether, no matter how you're gifted, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, and, and by the way, let me go back for just a second here. Let me go back for just a second and show you why I, don't, I think that each one of us has those, has those gifts. It's in the text, okay? Um, but if you look at verse 7, it says, but grace was given to each one of us. To each one of us, okay? And then also if you jump down uh, uh, down into verse 15, middle of verse 15, he says, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly. So again, every one of us has one of these gifts. But here's the simple command, is that we speak the truth in love. And some of us in this room struggle with one part of that, and some of us struggle with the other part. Some of us struggle to speak the truth. We have a hard time speaking the truth to people. Not all the time. When he's, I say speak truth, truth isn't a bad thing. In fact, in the context, primarily what he's talking about is speaking the truth of the gospel, the truth as it is in Jesus, as he's going to mention next week, which we'll look at in the, in the upcoming verses. Um, but some of us struggle with speaking truth, some of us struggle with speaking the truth in love. Some of us have no problem speaking truth. Yeah? But we have a hard time doing it in love. And while it's a very simple command, it's not always easy, right? You've heard me say this before, that the life of discipleship, what God calls us to, um, I'll give you that it's not easy, but here's the thing, it's not complicated. Don't confuse those two. Well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. What's this such a, why, does God, why does God hide his will? Why does he make it so difficult? He doesn't. He, he, he really doesn't. It's just most of the times we don't like to do the simple things that he calls us to do. Like maybe going and having a difficult conversation. Or maybe going and telling somebody that they hurt you. Or maybe going and asking somebody for forgiveness because you hurt them. We don't like to do those things. It's very simple. It's not complicated, but it is hard because we, we resist those things, okay? So there are the four ingredients. Now, I just want to give you a couple of just practical kind of takeaways in regards to these personal attitudes, doctrinal truths, spiritual gifts, and this one simple command of speaking the truth in love. Number one, allow the doctrinal truths to shape your personal attitudes, Okay? Allow the doctrinal truths to shape your personal attitudes. What do I mean? I mean that um, in regards to struggling with showing somebody humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with them in love, and you're not really eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with a certain individual, you need to... You need to allow those attitudes to be shaped by the doctrinal truths that Paul lays out right after that. So what I mean is if I'm, if I'm struggling to love so-and-so in the way that God requires of me, I need to preach the gospel both to myself and also um, in light of who they are and what God has done for them. Is that the same spirit that lives in me lives in them by grace? Is it the same body that I'm a part of? They're also a part of because of what Jesus did. The same hope that I have of heaven someday, they're going to be there with me. 
the same Lord Jesus that I try to follow, they're trying to follow him too. The same faith that I profess, they have the same faith. The baptism that I've, that I've identified with in dying and raising to Christ, they've done the same thing. And the same God that I call Father, they also call Father. Allow the doctrinal truths to shape your personal attitudes. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, put on then. Put, put on. It's the idea of clothing yourself. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Then he says this, and above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So many of us would be served well if we would spend the same amount of time each morning putting on the attitude of love and putting on a heart of love as much as we spend time picking out our wardrobe for that day. Yeah? And you all look wonderful, by the way, so God bless you in that. But take time to prepare your heart for the day in light of the truth that God has provided. Okay? Secondly, though, do not fall into the trap of pursuing unity for the sake of unity. So again, there's some things here that I'm saying that I understand I'm holding in tension. I'm not talking out of two sides of my mouth. I'm just trying to show you that the Scripture shows us both. But don't fall into the trap of pursuing unity for the sake of unity. Here's what I mean. This is very popular in the American church. We know we're not unified, and so we like to have little group church rallies that make it look like we're unified when we're not really unified. And so we come together and we say, we're, the, we're, we're one in Christ, we should be unified, and you know, let's all get, get, get together and sing, and kind of sing Kumbaya, and then the end of it is just that, well, here, here we are, we're unified, right? You Listen, you cannot be unified around unity. You cannot be unified around unity. You have to be unified around truth and the mission that God has given us to accomplish. And I want to show you here kind of the, the progression and how unity plays into this um, um, and how it, how it mingles with maturity, okay? So it, it's unity um, is not an ends, it is a means. Unity is a means of bringing about maturity, and maturity is to bring about stability, okay? So go down underneath the gifts there in verse 12, and look at verses 12 through 14 with me. After he lists the gifts... He says he gives these things, he gives these gifts, and again, I'm, I would argue for e to each one of us in different measure and in different ways. Why? To equip the saints, that's all of us, for the work of ministry. Why? What, what's that look like? For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the, of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. Now listen, so you got unity, unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, then the last part of verse 13, to mature manhood. Unity is to lead to maturity. What does maturity look like? Maturity looks like stability. Where am I getting that from? Continue to read. Unity of the faith, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, what? Tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Do you see where I'm getting stability from? Paul's saying that immaturity looks like just being tossed to and fro. You're unstable. Any, any sort of false teacher comes around, any sort of false teaching comes around, and we just gobble it up. And we go, well, I guess, you know, we're, we're unified with them, right? Well, no, not necessarily. That's why he puts the emphasis back in those doctrinal truths on one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Folks, there are a lot of other Jesuses being preached today. And it's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so, yes, we want to have these attitudes. Again, are you seeing it? It's, it's, it's all these ingredients. 
We have to be mature enough, first of all, just to be able to hold these things together in tension and allow them to mix and have a grid for holding all these things. That absolutely, we want to be humble and gentle and patient and so on. But it's also about one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one God. And yes, unity is important, but unity is not an end in and of itself. It's a means to maturity. So to give another example, the idea here that Paul's going to tease out over and over again, and it has already throughout the book, is that idea of Christ is the head, we as his people are the body. Okay? If you think about your body doing something, like Christ is the head, he wants his body to accomplish his mission. So if you roll with the metaphor of like Christ is the head and you know my body and I'm, my head is telling my body to lift something heavy. If God tells his body to do some heavy lifting, to, to, to get something done, in order for the body, like if you're going to do a deadlift, okay, we're just going to pick up, like that's more than just like using your bicep or something. It takes all of your body to do that. So if I need all of my body to move, to move some weight, there has to be unity within my body, Right? I can't, I can't have one leg trying to pull up and one arm kind of holding on halfway and, you know, while it's trying to do something else. There has to be unity, but that's to lead to maturity. And then it's, in the end, it's for the sake of, of stability. Okay? And what does stability ultimately look like? I would argue that stability ultimately looks like being able to speak the truth in love. To love well. Again, um, Guys, sometimes loving well, it means not saying anything. Sometimes loving well means just simply giving a hug. It means just simply sitting with somebody, mourning with those who mourn, weeping with those who weep. Uh, But sometimes loving someone well well means speaking the truth, even if they're not going to like it. Even if... uh, they might not receive it well. Again, any parent knows this, right? Parents, we don't hold back in telling our kids what we really think, right? But it's not because we're mean, even though they might think it sometimes. We, it's not because we're mean. It's because we love them, and we want, and we want the best for them. Uh, maturity ultimately ultimately looks like love. Paul's going to go on. I don't want to jump ahead too much because we're going to be talking about this over the next couple weeks, but if you'll jump over just very quickly to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Um, we, we measure the wrong things sometimes. Has anybody ever heard of the Elias, uh, I believe it's the Elias Sports Bureau? Anybody? Yeah, Ross, yeah. We, ESPN, it's like the only station that I watch on TV um, when I'm eating my protein cookies that tasted terrible. Uh, <coughs> but they, Elias Sports Bureau, like we've become, in, in sports, we've become obsessed with metrics over the last couple of years. So you have this, this group called the Elias Sports Bureau now that uh, they measure metrics and statistics on absolutely everything. And so it's, it's bizarre how in-depth they go into it. I mean, they can tell you, like, who, who made the most left-handed three-pointers on a Tuesday night on games that started at 7 o'clock east of the Mississippi. I mean, it's just, like, weird, bizarre, all the statistics that they have. And in, in America, in church, we, we like to measure things, too. However... Um, uh, I heard Jim Simbola say one time that the things that we like to measure are the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. Okay? And I just want to submit to you that that's the wrong metric. The me- there are metrics in the Bible that God wants us to, to measure, to be aware of, but I would say the primary metric that he wants us to be aware of is this, love. How well are you loving people? How well are we all loving each other in light of the love that we have experienced uh, that we have experienced in Christ? Doctrinal clarity should lead to sacrificial love if we truly understand it. 
we truly understand what Christ has done and are clear on our doctrine and that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, this is, Paul talks about these, these one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Then it should lead to sacrificial love. Don't forget, don't, don't, don't miss Paul's mention of love here in this chapter, like in verse 2, bearing with one another uh, in love, speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, so that the body builds itself up in love. Uh, don't, don't miss the connection between this and what we just talked about last week. Paul's prayer. That we're to be continuously praying that God would let us know how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love for us is. And as we're continually amazed by his love, then that love is going to come through us. But don't fall into the trap of pursuing unity for the sake of unity. Third, just, just savor the wisdom of God in causing us to need each other and in making us different. Okay, So there are things in this list, like the personal attitudes and the doctrinal truths. Those personal attitudes are things that we are all to be pursuing. We're to be the same in those attitudes. The doctrinal truths, the one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all that stuff, we're, we are one in those. That's true for all of us who have, who have trusted Christ. Okay, So those, there's ways that we are the same, and they unite us. But there are also ways that we are different, and they too unite us. And that's these, these giftings that he, that he lists here. And just very quickly, like, guys, sometimes we can get in disagreements in the church because we have different opinions on the way that we should pursue the solution to a problem, okay? And all it is is people with different gifts seeing different aspects of, of solutions of ways to fix the problem. Let me give you an example, okay? So <laughs> let's take a big problem in our world, okay? Let's say you've got a hot spot in the world somewhere um, that is a hotspot for, uh, for human trafficking, okay? We can all agree that human trafficking, uh, child slavery, any sort of slavery, it is, it's evil and it's wrong, okay? As the apostle looks at that, as the apostle looks at that, um, he's going to want to go there and he's going to want to probably plant a church. He's going to want to take the church forward in mission and plant churches in those places. The prophet is going to call, is going to say, we need to pray, and the prophet is going to call for justice, Okay? The evangelist is going to want to go there and share the gospel in that region and get people saved. The shepherd is going to want to care for those who have been hurt by that evil act of slavery. And the teacher is going to want to educate the culture in that area on how to, um, on how to identify some of the evils of it and, and some of the systems that help uh, uphold that evil. Now, which one of those is right? All of them. All of them. And so when we have a disagreement with somebody over the way that you should, should pursue a solution to a problem, uh, embrace it and understand that God has given different gifts to different people, and your gift matters, okay? Um, each one of you here this morning, if you call Mercy Hill home and if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you play a role in making us who we are. You hear me? You play a role in making us who we are, in shaping the culture of our church, and in helping our church to be mature. Again, look at the, look at the language. I know I'm just reading this a lot this morning, but it's all the sermon is right here. Look at what Paul says. That if each one of us, taking our gift and our right attitude and our doctrinal truth, if we do this one simple action of speaking the truth in love, Verse 15, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, listen, joined and held together by every joint, that's every part, that's you and me, every joint with which it is equipped when each part, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you call Mercy Hill home, you do not get to choose whether or not you influence the growth of another individual in this church. It's just a matter of are you going to influence it positively or negatively? Yeah? Each part, each part plays a role, but each part needs to be working properly. Well, what, what does that look like? It looks like having these attitudes. It looks like embracing right doctrinal truths. It looks like understanding that you have a spiritual gift and that you're called to use it. We all play a role in each other's sanctification. And this is just the last thing that I, I want to say here as we begin to wrap up. It's number four, and if you hear nothing else, hear what I'm about to say. 
is that your sanctification, sanctification just simply meaning the practical process of you becoming more Christ-like. Listen to me. Your sanctification will not thrive in isolation. Your sanctification will not thrive in isolation. We have grown up in America believing the lie, the myth, that as long as I got me, my Bible, and Jesus, I don't need anybody else. That is a lie. That is not the way the Bible talks about the local church. It's not. And if you've believed that, listen, I'm for the Bible, I'm for Jesus, and yes, I will, absolutely, there are seasons of our life where maybe if you're like Paul and you're sitting in prison, or maybe you're in a season where you're in the hospital, like there are absolutely times where God has us in, for special seasons in, in a little bit more isolation, and he's doing a special work in us in that season, okay? But, but far and wide, most commonly, the way that God calls us to become mature individually is by being vitally connected to the body of Christ. Vitally connected. And folks, if I can just shoot straight with you, most of us do not value the local church in the same way that Jesus does. We don't. And it's a big reason why our sanctification does not thrive. We've been given the promises of God. That's a mean of grace, all of the Bible. We've been given the promises. We've been given prayer. But we neglect his people. And we'll show up and we'll be with his people when it's convenient. I know I might be stepping on some toes here, but give me a little grace. Be patient with me. Bear with me. In love. Um, but I'm telling you, I, I see people struggling all the time and there, there's, there's stuff in their life they just can't seem to overcome. And they've been coming to church for three, four years, but I see them about maybe once or twice a month. And they don't pursue small church. They don't pursue being discipled. They don't join E2 course. And again, I'm not, I know I'm the pastor, like this is, he's just ranting about people not being involved. Listen, I, we actually have great participation here, okay? But, but I'm just saying, don't, again, don't act like it's some sort of mystery. You've been given the promises, You've been given prayer. I think most of us embrace those. But you've also been given God's people. And you need God's people. And the flip side of that is, God's people need you. They need the gift that God, that Christ, in his sovereignty, has given you for the sake of building up the body so that we can all become mature. Amen? Worship team, you can come up, and we're going to close. Again, guys, I know that this was just a lot of just kind of practical takeaways, but that's what it is. This is how Paul's, this is how Paul's going to come at us over the next couple months. He's going to come at us strong. He's going to come at us strong in regards to marriage. He's going to come at us strong in regards to parenting. He's going to come at us strong in regards to living holy lives and in walking in love and in, and in uh, spiritual warfare. He's going to shoot really straight with us. Um, because again, to celebrate the positional unity that Christ has provided without pursuing that practical unity that he's commanded is to treat the grace of God with disdain. Charles Spurgeon said this about the church. <clears throat> he said this, Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it to be perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not found it to be perfect. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect... I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have still been perfect after I had joined. Still imperfect as it is, I love this line, still imperfect as it is, it is to me the dearest place on earth. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, it is right for everyone to refrain from membership in the church. And then the testimony of God 
would be lost to the world. Just bow your heads with me as we close. We're going to take communion. And I just want to ask you this morning to think about a couple things. One is if everyone in the church was as committed to the church as you are, what would that church look like? Do you love the church as much as, much as Christ loves the church? Can you say that you honestly wake up in the morning and that you seek to put on love, humility, kindness, patience, bearing with one another in love? And again, those are struggles for all of us folks. I'm not trying to bring any condemnation here as we close. But this is the life of discipleship. The thing that separates discipleship from American Christianity is the pursuit of obedience. Not to earn salvation, not to earn grace. Grace is unmerited, but in light of grace. We pursue, that we pursue these things. Do you struggle more with speaking the truth or do you struggle more with speaking the truth in love? Search your heart. And I just also want to tell you this by way of encouragement. It's just that when I meet with new people that have been coming to Mercy Hill for a while and I get to meet them for the first time and they're just seeking to get involved, they always say two things, not, not always, but far and away the two most consistent comments that I get are one, they said, we like that you just teach the Bible. And to which I always reply, I don't know what else we would do. <laughs> and then secondly, the, the comment I get very regularly is, when we first came, we felt so loved. We felt so loved. And I truly want to encourage you guys, especially all those that call Mercy Hill home, you are doing a good job. Let's continue to do it for God's honor and glory. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for being good to us. Um, God, I pray that now as we sing again and as we take communion, that you would help us to search our hearts um, of all the things that you have forgiven us of, things we may be hiding from, from you. But Father, in light of today's passage, that we would greatly take of the bread, take of the cup, and then with a heart of eagerness be ready to go and to be reconciled to anyone to whom we need to be reconciled. Whether they attend Mercy Hill or not. You've called us to this. And I pray, Lord, that the unity that you've provided on the cross would be a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You guys stand.